Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organisations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast and I'm delighted that we've got another of our excellent HR's role in series to talk about today and we're going to go into one of those topics that most of us find really difficult um, and not necessarily the most exciting although I've got confidence that my guest today is going to make it as exciting as is possible home run Mary so I'm delighted that I've got Mary from the HRI team who's going to take us through what we really need to know about data protection. So welcome, Mary. Would you like to um, introduce yourself? Thank you very much, Lucinda. Hello, everyone. My name is Mary Asante. I'm a director of HRI. Um, I am an information security consultant, and um, I'm also currently doing a PhD with University of Warwick on cyber security. Uh, so this afternoon, um, oh, I'm here to talk to Lucinda about data protection. So you've got you've got all the authority about this, which is great, and and right up to date with cybersecurity as as well. And I suppose this is one of those topics, Mary, right? Which which as an HR professional, many of us would really rather not have to deal with. Yet it's really hot topic, isn't it? I mean, so why is it so important in this profession for us to really know our responsibilities? I mean, data protection is very important because it's all about in protection of information and the protection of data. Why it's become very important and quite prevalent over recent years is due to the introduction of GDPR, General Data Protection Regulations, which came into force in May 2018. So before then, data protection was around. The original Data Protection Act was in 1997, but it was almost a dark art that was left to the information security experts. But with the use of technology, and as we all know, uh, with the pandemic increasing, people are working online, working remotely, working from home. And... As consultants, we use technology for our businesses all the time. So we use our mobile phones, we use laptops, we may use desktop computers, iPads, all sorts of tablets for our business so that we can work on the go. So that is why protecting the information those devices contain or processes is very important. Yeah, I suppose when I think about it, and, and, and this has changed, I think, because obviously we've got cloud software. And when we first started out 10 years ago, 
everything was IT. You had to go through IT because they would lock down your computers. They'd control what you could put on your computers. Um, I know in some firms, when we look at all the collaboration technology that people have used, then that's um, completely had to change in order to enable remote working, hasn't it? And without necessarily IT being able to control it to the extent they would. So, so somehow this, there's more data out there, plus there's more tools that we can access that data. And people are using their own tools, I guess, to log in if you've got web aspects. So there's higher risk, I guess what it's saying is there's more risk. You're absolutely spot on, Lucinda. Even as independent consultants, a lot of us use cloud-based software uh, to yeah. run our businesses. So you may, for example, use an HR system like your Actus Performance Management software. You may use Microsoft Outlook for your emails and storing your documents on OneDrive or uh, G Suite for their Google Mail and their Google Drive and the suite of documents that come with it. So um, as an, an, an independent consultant, you are sometimes your own everything. You will be the HR expert. You may be your own IT department until you outsource it to somebody. So there is a lot um, of systems, software, tools, and um, cloud platforms that people use to run their businesses. Yeah, and people, um, you have things like self-service, which are an expectation now, and that, that's what you need. So again, more people, so previously, um, you know, previously you had uh, HR records in a, in a locked filing cabinet, right? So yeah. you could physically control where it was. And then, oh. um, and then obviously, and, and so it's still risky. And then you had stuff which was, in an infrastructure and only therefore limited people would be able to access it. But now more people are accessing data. We are storing more data and there's a variety of sources. I mean, instantly cloud software, like I said, is, is probably is, is every, very, very secure in terms of the hosting It's professionally hosted. And many people prefer having something like that because actually it's safer than having on-premise where you're having to completely do updates. So it's not so much about that. It's more about, I think, user access, isn't it? The fact that maybe we're not great with our people may not be as diligent as individuals. It's user error or people not being so diligent in, in their passwords and stuff like that. That's one perception I have well, about it. It's all about your IT setup, really. Um, yeah. yes, there are cloud-based solutions out there, but some people work purely off, say, a laptop. Yes. And store things locally still. It depends on the size of their business, the nature of their uh, operations, etc and others use uh, cloud-based um, solutions. But yes, um, access is very important. So when you talk about information security or data security, there are three key uh, pillars to it. There's the confidentiality of the data, the integrity of the data, and the availability of it. So in terms of access control, you are looking at who needs access to that information that you hold. And so it's almost like operating on the need to know principle is key to managing and um, access control. So you need to think quite carefully, like, you know, the scenario where you describe the HR filing cabinet, only HR or only one person or a group of trusted people may have the key or the past, uh, the code, if you use the um, code protected type cabinets um, yeah. or whatever. You're controlling or, quite clearly who accesses it, aren't exactly. you? Exactly. 
and the same principles quite clearly should be applied to online accesses. You need to think quite carefully who need access to a system and why. Yes. So you can almost go down the role-based um, access control. So you build a profile around, let's say within your organization, you build a profile of who needs access to what level of information based on the role they play within the organization or within your business, as opposed to making it a free for all. I think the temptation as a small organization is to share passwords because it's cheaper. It's cheaper yeah, share to logins, have, yeah. just have one login and then give access to a number of people than it is to buy seats or subscriptions for every single individual that worked for you. But from security point of view, that's probably one of the worst systems that you can put in place. Because if something does go wrong, you may not necessarily be able to know who did it if there's more than one of you with access to that information. At the same time, if you get hacked, you may not pick it up easily either because an activity that slightly looks like a genuine activity you may assume that it's one of your other colleagues doing it. This is a really good point. So, so we've kind of gone into software and we'll go more broadly as well with GDPR. But I think this is very valid points. We experienced it with some of our clients in larger organisations as well. So generally in any system you're using, you'll have someone who has got administrator permissions and they may well be able to create other administrators. And I think the key is you have to make sure that, that you realise that that is actually a very responsible job because I have been into an organisation where they had created so many administrators, the other one had left um, and you had loads of people and the people administrators had visibility of people's personal data and they probably shouldn't have. So it was breaching policies and, and people just not realising their you know, their responsibility if you have an administrative position that it has to be used in the same way as having, you know, the key. You would be you know, in the security of a business. They say you shouldn't just let anyone in that you don't know. You should be quite careful about who you give administrative permissions to something where they're seeing data because we've got a responsibility. Absolutely spot on. It's almost driven like it's great, as most HR professionals will know. Uh, policies and procedures don't fail. What fails is the people implementing the policies and the procedures. So the um, culture of an organization, um, the ability to follow um, simple information security management systems in place. So your data protection rules and policies and processes that you put in place, following that to the letter is quite important. And, uh, if it becomes embedded in the culture of the organization, it's easier to follow and it's more likely to be, to succeed than if it's done on, a, on an ad hoc basis. Yeah, and going back to, if you're in a small organization, you probably don't have a, an IT department or a governance person who's going to be looking at your shoulder and therefore, um, as an HR person, then having having that alertness, you're kind of custodian of that data. Do you have any, is there any kind of legal comeback on you as a person in that? Do you, do you have a, official responsibilities with, with anybody or is it more of a moral obligation? So for any organisation uh, that controls data or processes data under um, GDPR is required to have an appointed uh, data protection officer. Now, that DPO may be internal 
or they may be external. It could be part of somebody's role. Um, it could be our source. Now, in terms of HR, most HR people will be responsible for the data of the employees within the business and maybe contractors or subcontractors, depending on how that is structured for the purposes of engaging uh, them either through uh, employment or through their services uh, for them to be able to um, work for the organization. However, what normally happens is that when something, a new legislation comes in, HR does get pulled into dealing with a lot of it. So you, you may find that some HR people work outside the scope of the HR department and looking after the employee data, and they may get drawn into the wider data protection scope of um, dealing with, let's say, customer data, how do we protect it, how do we do this, etc. But like most things, um, it's very important that you, you understand exactly what the legal obligations of the business under GDPR is, you'll understand, because there are other rules as well and other legislation that touches on it when it comes to something like customer data, which is um, the privacy and electronic communication um, rules. So, and uh, you know, when you're signing up to marketing, uh, when you're signing up to something and you have to give an explicit consent. Yeah. It's nice to be able to contact you. Yes. And yes. so, yeah, so it's quite important that as HR, you don't just say yes to doing something because you've been asked, but you totally understand what you've been asked to do and make sure that you've got the skills uh, and knowledge and know how to be able to do it. Otherwise, find somebody who who has a better understanding of the subject area or work with other departments within the organization to be able to do it, um, to meet your legal obligations. Do it properly. So what would be good, you know, as ever, we try and make these really practical. So I know we're going to talk about sort of the common mistakes of HR professionals and also um, you know, some tips as to what we can do. Before we go there, can, I always get a bit confused as to what sense, the levels of sensitivity of data right, um, when you have personal data, and some is less sensitive than others, and it's sort of high levels. Could you explain a bit about that? Yes, yeah, so in terms of sensitivity of data, um, one, of the, one, one of the analogies that I use for the HR community is if you think about the, discriminate, the Discrimination Act, and the protected characteristics under the Discrimination Act. Mm -hmm. So um, you, most of the information that is to do with somebody's gender, race, religion, um, sexuality, uh, sexual orientation, etc., may fall under protected um, special category information. Um, so yes, some, somebody's health information and health data will be sensitive as well. So um, basically data protection is about information relating to a personally identifiable person. 
or individual. So and any of, so personally identifiable would be the, the name of it. It's, it can be your name. It can be your date of birth, yes. your address. So any information that if somebody laid their hands on, they will be able to deduce who you are, will be protected under data protection. So is that so, protected characteristics? No, that is the normal what falls within right. data protection. So what information needs to be protected. But then the special characteristics, as I said earlier, is information such as information about your medical, any medical right. condition that you may have, your health status, um, any potentially health and safety records during your course of employment, uh, your sexuality, ethnicity, your affiliation to potentially a political group or trade union or anything like that will potentially fall under sensitive information for the purposes of employment. Okay, thank you. So, right, tell, so what are, our, what are the biggest areas where, where we fall, we accidentally go wrong as HR professionals? I think that one of the most common areas is in sending emails. You know, when you start typing emails, they autofill, um, Col um, the autofill column there. So you start typing my email address, you go M-A-R, and then you've got three Marys, and the first one pops up, and you press that, and you, you press send. Yeah. And it's sometimes not until the person gets back to you to say, oh, listen, I don't think this information was meant for me. Yeah. That you realise that, oh, You really hope it's nothing bad. Yeah. What have I done? Or... Sometimes you probably go through your send folder and then it registers that, oh my goodness, who have I sent this to? And because of the nature of information that HR deals with, which may include people's salary, disciplinary notes, and um, other uh, discussions with managers or giving advice, etc., it, it may be sort of quite... Yeah, it, so sending sending sensitive information to the wrong person. I thought lots of people have had that experience as you don't. Or or also reply to all type thing can be a, where you've got a, sending something on where you've got the email trail underneath it is the other thing, isn't it? You sometimes have you can read down it. Everyone, everyone cringes. I'm sure that's happened to most people. So right, so that's probably our biggest area to, to to watch out. Just take that extra moment and don't press send on an email in a hurry, which I think certainly I'm guilty of. What what do we what can we do to protect data, Mary? What's the best thing we can do to to really protect it? So um, I think we've touched on some of them. So access control is very um, key to protecting data. That where the data is stored at rest. So when you are not using the data. How do you store it? Again, in the old analogy of a paper filing cabinet, you will lock the cabinet away. Uh, you will lock the like cabinet away, yeah. the key away so that no one has access to it. Mm. So in the same vein, making sure that when your data is at rest, it's encrypted in such a way that no one can get access to that data is quite important. Locking your screen, so you're working on your laptop and you need a comfy break or something, locking your screen so that if somebody walks in after you, they can't see what you were work, uh, working on uh, before you left is also key. 
So putting passwords on your mobile devices, strong passwords that are not easy to guess or um, easy to break on your devices. And don't use the same password on everything. Absolutely not. I think the temptation is for an easy life because we all have several places that require us to enter password. And now with the increasing use of uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, it's almost annoying to keep entering different passwords, different Mm -hmm. authentication and this and that just to get sometimes into an email or into an app to be able to do something. So it's important to avoid using the same password everywhere. And also more importantly, it's not advisable to write your passwords down um, because that almost defeats the object. If someone gets access to it, that's it. They can get into anything. If you do use a password manager, again, make sure that you go for one from a reputable source and you, you, again, sort of maintain that within their advice that they give you. We use LastPass, um, and, and that's they are reputable, um, and obviously, obviously, you need to have a very, very secure password to get into it because it's a vault with all of them in there. But I have to say, it is a bit of a lifesaver when you've got multiple logins in terms of things like that. So I think that's down um, where where so we've been advised to go. Do you use one, Mary? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me you've got them all written down in a in a cabinet. <laughs> I don't, I don't write my passwords. Um, yeah, so um, basically for me, I go with strong password recommendation for most things that I use. And I try to create a slightly unique password for most platforms. You have a strategy, I, yes. I've got one of those. Around that, actually, about using secure passwords, not having it written down, etc. I've come across where people have used so secure passwords into devices that they don't often use or systems that they don't often use that when they go to access that, they can't. And we need to be careful about that because sometimes depending on what it is, for example, encrypted drives, you may lose the information that you hold onto it because Mm -hmm. you may not necessarily be able to reset that password. So it's quite important that, yes, you use a secure password, but make sure you either have a way of remembering it or you use a secure password manager or a, a, some sort to yeah. uh, manage your passwords. And actually, right now, a lot of browsers are quite good. You know, when you go in and they ask you, do you want to save your password? Uh, when you type in your password in, say, um, Safari or Google um, Chrome or mm-hmm. something, and sometimes they offer yes. to save your password. And for people who use that, you may find that if you use the same password more in more than two or so locations, they will actually flag oh, yeah. up. Oh, that's good, yeah. this password in more than um, you are advised to change it. So. 
Yeah. Okay. So again, it's, it does seem like common sense, but they're not necessarily common practice, are they? So we've talked about, um, you know, do your password, make sure you, know, you use two-factor authentication where appropriate. I know it can seem like a pain, but it is a, a good backup, certainly on your keyword areas. Um, what other things do we need to think about? Um, updating, keeping your software up to date. So most software updates come about as a result of security updates. A lot of them, yes, there are functional updates in there, but a lot of them, especially apps, are responses to security threats uh, that the developers become aware of. So it's good practice to make sure that you update quite uh, frequently. As I said earlier, use reputable software or cloud service. Cheap isn't always the best. Neither is expensive always the best. You've got to do the due diligence to make sure that it's a reputable source and it will protect um, the data or the information Mm -hmm. that you hold. And also um, back up your data securely so that if something goes wrong and you do lose your data, you can at least restore from your backup data. So if you have a backup regime in place, either you backup daily, depending on your business, the size of your operation, how busy you get. It may be daily backups um, might be sufficient. Uh, Some do a mixture of daily, weekly, monthly, et cetera. So do um, reflect on the nature of your operation and what is um, suitable for your operation, but definitely do backup your business. Back it up, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Again, that's and, one of the things, and not losing and not losing laptop, not having things held locally on laptops actually, because if you get the laptop, Nick. Whereas at least if you're backing up centrally to a server or a cloud, then then it is securely held, um, and and you're less likely to lose it in terms of, of, of things too. Yes, and also um, awareness training as well is very important. Um, as I said earlier, it's great to have systems and processes and policies and everything in place. But what usually uh, fails in terms of security is the people. People are the weakest link when it comes to information security or protecting data, etc. Actually, and that's it. And on that, a little story that I will share, and I won't name any names, but um, a data protection person that I know, um, also be really careful about clicking on links in emails. Um, was actually, you know, had, had a sort of phishing email, didn't realise it's phishing, you know, looked, looked credible. They're getting more and more credible, aren't they? I mean, and, uh, and uh, in fact, and, and, it clicked, and clicked on it very often. I didn't realise you can click on an email in the um, subject area you might know more than me on this um, if you right click on it, it and look at it because often they're really they, they're almost the domain it should be but then you can see what's behind it it's almost like a masked domain so if you're ever unsure or you know someone's asking you for details um, and you want to double check it and don't send both a password don't send if, if you're banking obviously it's a bit more not subject that says but be careful about sending things in one email right phone someone don't they say phone someone and, and so do more than one route with passwords yes, and things. In terms of phishing emails, um, they are sort of the commonest form of scams. And a lot of people are becoming more and more aware, but it's very known, um, well known within the security industry that scammers are always a step or two ahead of industry. 
and as they catch up with awareness training, making people aware, etc., they change their tactics slow, um, sort of slightly. So some of the commonest things that you may find in a phishing email is spelling mistakes. Or one of the things to look out for is, um, especially if it's somebody you work quite closely with, the tone of the email yeah. may be totally different. So sometimes it, it may just be one word in that email that you would think this person wouldn't use that sort of word or um it is just taking that pause isn't it though and and when people get caught out it's often when they haven't thought they're in a hurry and they kind of thought it was a bit odd but they just oh i'll just do it quickly um and a bit like you know, checking that email just taking that pause maybe picking up the phone or instant messaging saying just checking this emails from you it's just something else is, is worth doing isn't it um, I think it's a little bit like um, using the psychology of selling, really, which is you kind of get people hyped up when, when they know that most people are extremely busy. Most people get too many emails, so don't really take time to look at yeah. it. Or yeah. even you know how, about how you said tap on the subject area um, to see the email, to check the from email to know that it's actually from an authentic person. A lot of people, although you know at the back of your mind to do that, a lot of people wouldn't because we are all too busy. We don't have enough time to do anything. And if you do get an email, which is especially asking you to either forward something, some sensitive information, it can be a sensitive commercial information, it can be your pricing information, it can be your customer list, it can be sort of financial information, so bank details, Mm -hmm. et cetera, you do need to pause and almost certainly not use a link within the email that says click on this link to do something, but more importantly, use other means by uh, to confirm with the individual, especially let me give us an example of, let's say, summertime, um, summer holidays when people could actually go away. One of the commonest scams was when CEOs were on holiday. And how do people find out a CEO is on holiday? You may find that most people will put their out of office on. Yes. Yeah. So when a junk email comes in, they equally get the out of office notification sometimes if it hits the inbox. Yeah. So they may well know. Uh, that the person is away on holiday. Another way is some people update their social media profile. So mm-hmm. Facebook, so this, this and that. So it's very easy um, for threat actors to piece together people's lifestyle and potentially where they may be at any one point. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it, it's very easy for them to, let's say, then target the finance department of the organization, maybe the FD, the financial controller. Yeah, can you transfer some money to so and so? Yeah, pay this invoice rapidly. Yeah, urgently. It must be paid. this overdue must be paid instantly, or this customer is chasing me for this, and can you pay instantly or whatever? And half the time, it, yeah, that, it, it gets through. Yeah, and and you can see why absolutely. Um, I mean, it's that that's very similar to the thing that happened to the person that I know. Right, let's go back to something else in terms of that was very that can happen to any of us, any personally or professionally, can't it? This is something which is I think sends shivers down HRs 
um, spine, basically. And, and you get lots of calls personally, don't you, on this one, Mary, when people go, what, what is a SAR? Tell us about subject access requests that um, so, fill people with dread. So basically, subject access requests is um, people, uh, people have the right, uh, data subjects have the right to request for information you hold about them. And I'll define a data subject. That is anyone about whom that information relates to. So for example, if I am a customer of yours or I'm a client of yours, I can potentially put in a subject access request uh, to find out information you hold on me rather than our business because if I suspect that there is something dodgy going on. In the HR world, an employee uh, can put in a subject access request or to an HR consultant, an employee of a client of yours may put in a subject access request if they believe that your advice, for example, may have led to them losing their job or getting a disciplinary warning or anything like that, um, then yes. So an individual can put in a subject access request for the information an organization or an entity holds about them. And are they expecting every bit of information that you hold? I think one of the key things is it can be very simple to deal with or it can get very complicated. It depends on the nature of requests. So when the request comes in, it's worth one, one of the things that you need to do as soon as you receive the request is to acknowledge that you've received the request. And um, you need to bear in mind that it doesn't need to be in writing. They can phone you and request um, for a SAR over the phone. So mm -hmm. they, they can do it via an email um, they can sort of text you if they've got your text message or if they are walking past you, if you're within the same organization, they can just say, they can ask you, it can come in a verbal, written or any form. So um, don't get into the habit of it only needs to be in writing before you recognize that you have received a subject access request. But when you are acknowledging it, you write, you, you do so in writing and you clarify the information they actually want. So that you may find that they may just want information relating to a particular disciplinary issue that you are helping them with, for example, or they may just want information in relation to the redundancy calculations or something to do with a restructuring or something will make your work slightly easier. Otherwise, the tendency to just go through the entire sort of, and you can, it includes, but not limited to any information you hold about the individual on say your HRIS, um, so your HR information systems, it may include any information that you hold on them via email. Um, if the business uses, let's say Skype or any online platform for internal communication, if you use WhatsApp as part of your business's normal communication, et cetera, test messaging. So it, it, it's include all sorts of forms, including written notes. So it can get quite extensive. So it's really important that you clarify with the individual exactly 
what they are looking for. Now you can't charge um, to administer that sort of a subject access request. You have to do so free of charge and you have to do that within uh, 30 days of uh, receipt of it. However, if it's a very complex request, you can ask for a two month extension uh, to deal with it. And if you feel it's a reasonable request, you may be allowed to charge a fee, but that is very rare. And even if you are allowed to charge a fee, it's minimal fees compared to the amount of time and effort that would go into responding to that subject access request. So you have to gather like every bit of information. Or that's, I, I, God, that sounds like a nightmare, frankly. So, so, sort of thing that could tie you up for months trying to get all of the data and, and some, I mean, the HRIS is probably going to be one of the easier places to get it from, just, just do a report. It's all the other sort of dispersed communication systems. But, uh, and, and what, I mean, I guess, generally someone's going to do it if they're disgruntled, I, I'm guessing. And, and Most of the time, you're absolutely spot on there. Most of the time is disgruntled employees. It's you know, normally when there's a discipline. And actually sitting on the other side of it, most, uh, most HR professionals, if they're advising people, they know either family, friends who come to them for informal advice, if there's an issue, may even advise them to, to put a subject access request in right. because it may highlight discussions that's been had around the subject, um, the, the issue at hand. Um, so you've got to get all the information that's been about that person, even if they weren't, well, especially if they weren't part of it. So there's conversations about that. I mean, how do you necessarily know who's, e who's emailed about that person? I mean... Well, that, that is not up to the uh, su data subject. It's not to the employee to tell you or to determine, okay, I want the conversation you had with this person or with that person or with that person. Their duty is to say to you, the employer, or to the consultant, can you provide me with any information you hold on me or information you hold on me in relation to my recent disciplinary hearing or whatever? Right. So hopefully it would be have a specific focus as opposed to anything yeah. ever. I mean, one of the Then it's down to you to then look through your records and say, right, okay, on the 1st of April, we had... Um, an email exchange about mm -hmm. this matter. And then on the 10th of April, there was some sort of discussion going on on Skype about this issue or on, and it's not just relying on your memory. So it's looking at your systems as well, which is why it can be time consuming yeah. and you may well need IT assistance in that. And then uh, and I take it you're talking about it's written communication only, is that we're going to get all I suppose audio, if that's unlikely to exist. But I mean, if you've had a conversation, that doesn't, that's fine because you can't evidence that. Yeah. No, oh, if it's a verbal conversation, then, and it's not recorded, then yeah. surely you can't evidence that. I mean, but it's just, if, it's, if it's a Zoom call and you recorded it, then that would fall within that category. Yeah. Uh, whole, other, whole other area, isn't it? All the Zoom calls and stuff. Um, and then, the that, that is interesting. I'm just thinking in terms of the 
one of the a, a bit of advice as HR people to managers recording information in systems. I, I, I was saying that when they're putting stuff in Actors in the one to one, say, oh, if I want to write, make notes about somebody. I said, say, just don't write something you wouldn't be happy for them to see because remember they could demand access to it. And yeah, that's that's the thing to be aware of, isn't it, with with managers when we guide them. Exactly. So in terms of that, um, any conversation that HR has uh, with managers, so in terms of giving advice about individuals, about general topic, etc., could potentially be used as part of evidence in court. It's not subject to legal privilege. So um, if you went to a solicitor for an advice, for example, depending on if it's straightforward advice, nothing extensive to sort of go uh, into, um, then that advice is protected by legal privilege. So you and your solicitor can have that self-information. However, with HR, any exchange can potentially be used um, as part of evidence if you went to an employment tribunal or anything like that. So it's very important to think about what you write down and also to train your managers to think about anything they write down. The thing Mm -hmm. about writing is in emails, people almost are a little bit professionals when it comes to text messaging and Skype and all other messaging boards. You'll be shocked some of the things that you see written down. Why did you and it's out there forever, isn't it? That same social media, isn't it? So yes, really good point. Okay, right. That's that's surprisingly fascinating. I think I hope listeners have enjoyed. Let me see. In a moment, I'm going to get maybe Mary. If you can just tell people how they can come to you, because this is still a specialist subject, isn't it? It's quite a scary subject. I mean, we've talked about why it's so important. It's definitely something that HR professionals um, have to be mindful of. We have to guide other people in the organisation to treat data responsibly. We have to make sure the right people have access to data that we are custodians on. GDPR is really the name of the game. We haven't even touched on how long you hold on to data, but you've got to make sure you get rid of it in in line with um, GDPR as well. The stuff about our basic cyber common sense and hygiene and, and housekeeping, which is all of us have got to be alert of in this day and age. We've talked about subject access requests, which gives many people bad, uh, you know, that's sort of thing actually you guys help with, isn't it? And legal privilege. So we've gone through quite a lot there. Um, if this has blown your mind, don't worry, because what I would recommend is if you're not already a member of the HR independence group, there's a great Facebook group that the good guys run. That also it's a great membership organisation, which will we'll direct you to that in terms of the show notes. But I mean, it, it's specifically in terms of how HRI and yourself, particularly Mary, as an expert can help. Um, what sort of help do you give um, HR consultants in this area if they need it? So for HR consultants needing um, advice and guidance, uh, we do a number of things. So for our platinum members, they are assessed against our HRI standards. And one of the standards is, data, is on data and information management. So that looks quite closely about, at how they are set up their IT systems, how they manage their data, protect their data, how they manage that customer relations and um, clearing of data within sort of means and um, communication with their customers, et cetera. So we help and support them through that where they need help. I also run a regular masterclass on data protection for HR consultants. 
And if you go on to events on the HRI, um, HR Independence uh, website, uh, you will find the next masterclass um, when it's running and um, you should be able to join that. So that is um, a paid event for non-members and it's free to our members as well. And I do go into a lot of in-depth details around how consultants can practically achieve um, the compliance with data protection regulations, etc. Brilliant. And, and I know you give hands-on support, don't you, with subject access requests or you have done before with people who are members. I saw that one of those go the other day. Yes, so um, I, I do support members um, quite a bit in the area on data protection in general and um, on subject access requests. So request comes in uh, looking at the nature of the request, what it might entail, how they can possibly respond to it uh, when they need to respond, etc. So support them. Fantastic. Mary, thank you so much for a comprehensive um, podcast episode all about data protection as ever if you go to the HR uprising <laughs> website there will be links on there which will take you to the HRI page and also there's some specific blogs and um, papers that the HRI team have done on this sort of topic so if you want to see this written down or have more reference material um, then we'll direct you to their website where you can get more and obviously people can look you up I'm assuming Mary on LinkedIn and other social media yeah, so on LinkedIn, uh, I think my LinkedIn profile, quite. if you type my name, Mary Asante, you should be able to find my LinkedIn. We'll put that in the show notes as well, and then they can find you directly. Yes. Wonderful. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today on the HR Uprising podcast. That was absolutely educational to the extreme there. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.